From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, where we too partake in New Year's resolutions, and our New Year's resolution to you is more assholes all the time. But not just UFO assholes now. We have diversified, and we will be looking at all kinds. Uh, except that, you know, there'll be people, the personification of the idea of an asshole. So, yeah, if you're looking for porn, it's not here. Sorry, guys. We are continuing our January tradition of historically looking at strikes that have brought us to the world that we have for workers' rights. Chelsea, today we're going to be looking at both a man and a company that have really shaped our labor market as we see it today. This episode is on the Pinkertons. Now, Chelsea, have you ever heard this name? Aside from our ongoing list of things to cover on the podcast, I have not. Okay. I just kept scrolling past it because I didn't know what it was. Yeah, fair enough. And you've actually mentioned them in the past before. A few of our previous episodes are going to come up in this one. But I think this is a good way to come into this episode because there's a lot to learn and there'll be some surprises along the way. Oh, I love surprises. Sometimes. Sometimes. I hope they're good surprises. This one, I'm just going to spoil it a little bit right now. There's no murder death cults in here. So we're we're good. Might we go so far as to say that is foreshadowing? There may be some foreshadowing. There will be death. It will not be mass starvation. Okay. Well, that's good. That surprises out of the way, then. Anyhow, let's get into our story. And it starts with the birth of a man by the name of Alan Pinkerton, surprisingly enough. <laughs> now, Mr. Pinkerton, born Baby Pinkerton in Glasgow in July of 1819. He only went to school until he was 10, and then his father died. And I should say, a lot of this comes from Wikipedia and the Pinkertons' website itself. There's some of it that's probably embellished. I'll talk about them when I'm not sure if it actually happened or not, okay? Okay. So despite the fact that he left school at 10 years old, Pinkerton was still a voracious reader and really liked to self-educate. Whether or not that's true, no idea, because it doesn't really have anything to do with the story. Just says it. He was a cooper by trade, and he was active in the Scottish Chartist movement as a young man. The Chartists were basically the first people to say we need workers' rights in the UK. And actually, it was super interesting. I didn't know this, but before the Chartists came along, it was actually illegal for anybody who didn't own land to act as a member of Parliament. You had to own land, which basically means no workers could participate in Parliament. I think we've talked about that before, right? I think I knew that. Well, back in the day, there used to be you had to own land to vote. And that was basically the old style. Also, there was no wage for working in Parliament either. So really, if you weren't rich outside of it, you couldn't be in Parliament. So like the Chartist movement was a big push. They got a few things changed. Those are two of the things. There was five things in total they did, but this is not a Chartist episode. So we're going to keep going. Okay. But weirdly paints him as kind of like a pro worker guy. We'll talk about that later. He also says that he was raised as a lifelong atheist. Now Pinkerton moves to the US in 1842. And in 1843, he settles down in Dundee Township, Illinois, which is 50 miles Northwest of Chicago on the Fox River. He builds a cabin there and he starts his own cooperage who we don't know anything about because they don't mention her outside of this (laughs) is sent to move with him she was living in chicago he's like hey i built this cabin come live with me she says okay and remember these are all thick thick scottish accents (laughs) i was going to attempt it but i want this to be listenable i was just just gonna say should we be doing that or is that a bad idea (laughs) 
Well, we don't actually have that much of a Scottish listening population, so maybe, but <laughs> didn't prep it, so we'll do it a different time. And they add this here, as early as 1844, Pinkerton was part of the Chicago abolitionist movement as one of its leaders, and his Dundee home was a stop on the Underground Railroad, so helping freed slaves get to Canada. Oh, that's good. Yeah, nothing to substantiate it. Okay. Either of those. That's neutral then. Pinkerton, you know, he's got his cooperage, he's making barrels, but he starts to get into a bit of criminal detective work in a very strange way. He was okay. out in the forest looking for wood to make barrel staves, and he came across what he considered a band of counterfeiters. After observing their movement for some time, he informed the local sheriff who arrested this counterfeiter group. This led to Pinkerton being appointed in 1849 as the first police detective in Chicago. What? And in 1850, he partnered with Chicago attorney Edward Rucker in forming the Northwestern Police Agency, which later became Pinkerton and Company. And finally, it ends up with the name Pinkerton National Detective Agency. What? Those were his only prerequisites was stumbling upon a group of counterfeiting? Were they actually even counterfeiting? See, I don't actually know for sure. Because, you know, police records from that day are spotty at best. Like, there's no criminal I, database at the time. Wow, I am just flabbergasted at this. Back in the days when you just had to stumble upon a crime. To Some crazy Scottish man yelling things. I better follow him. Seems like an excellent detective. Okay, okay, he's a shaker and a mover. Got it. So the Pinkertons National Detective Agency starts off in kind of the bread and butter of the detective work. First off, working for the Postal Service. Because, you know, postal what? detective work is lucrative at the time and then they move on to the railway because you I know mean, natural segue because those are the two groups that pay well for how he got into this like then he just gets postal and railway like national things you just wait to see where this goes what? first off he i feel like he realized that this company was going to be very evil right from the start <laughs> chelsea i need you to look up pinkerton logo just so that you can see what I'm talking about. Oh no, is- Pinkerton's insignia is a wide open eye with the caption, we never sleep underneath it. Oh no, this is troublesome. It's very like straight up. He's like, how can I make this seem evil? <laughs> I, I don't think you can come up with an eviler logo. Nope. And this is how he got the counterfeiters for sure is by never sleeping and always watching them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Pinkerton starts out doing postal detective work and then moves on into the railway because there's lots of train robberies happening at the time. It apparently solves a couple of them during the 1850s. And this brings Pinkerton into contact with a man by the name of George B. McClellan, who was the chief engineer and vice president of the Illinois Central Railroad. And then another man, you may have heard this name before, Abraham Lincoln, who was a lawyer for the company as well. Can we just go over his details quick because- He's a very tall man, well known for his wrestling acumen. He ends up, I believe, also becoming president of the United States and assassinated right that abraham lincoln okay yes yeah has I a hat yes wood teeth I prominent believe, hat. As well. no that was the other one that was washington yeah. wood no. teeth yeah yeah Anyhow, that he has a relationship now with Abe Lincoln. And then the Civil War begins. Pinkertons ends up serving as the head of Union Intelligence Services during the first the two fuck? years of the war. And apparently, he heads off an alleged assassination plot in Baltimore to assassinate Abe Lincoln on his way to Washington, D.C. Weren't they friends or lovers? Friends, as far as I can tell. 
he was also tasked with providing estimates of Confederate troop numbers to General George B. McClellan. Again, that other guy was part of the railroad. This guy just seems to stumble into like the best people to get him stuff. You can't even do something like this these days. You could never have no credentials and like just be like head of like security for the United States. Literally, in 1844 is around the time that he stopped the counterfeiters. And then five years later, he's protecting the president. This is five years later? Wow. No, this is like a different day and age. You could never, we can't even own houses now because they're too expensive. Oh, man. So he was tasked with providing general estimates of Confederate troop numbers for General George B. McClellan when he commanded the Army of the Potomac. His agents often worked undercover as Confederate soldiers and sympathizers to gather military intelligence. Pinkerton himself served on several undercover missions as a Confederate soldier using the alias Major E.G. Allen. And I really love when people are so lazy with their aliases that they literally just use their first name as their last name. It's pretty great. I'm just getting to thinking now. Where would he come up with his, like, process for how to do things as, like, intelligence? Like, he has no experience other than stumbling upon people in the woods. And now he's, like, in charge of very big things. Oh, yeah. He's just making it up. He's like, ah, maybe we gotta do this today. And allegedly stops an assassination attempt against Abe Lincoln, which is just like, so bizarre. But at the same time, zero proof. Zero proof this ever happened. Like nobody was arrested for Okay, it. so maybe that's how he's doing things. Just to say like- My opinion is he's an absolute perfect. bullshitter, yeah and people can't understand him. And you can only ask somebody three times to repeat themselves before it's too awkward to just accept, just accept what they yes. said. Yes. Uh-huh. I'm flabbergasted at this point. Like, okay, okay, let's continue. He's working as Major E.G. Allen in the Confederacy <laughs> to go undercover and figure this shit out, what's going on. And he worked across the Deep South in the summer of 1861, focusing on fortifications and Confederate plans. He was found out in Memphis and barely escaped with his life. This counterintelligence work done by Pinkerton and his agents is comparable to the work done by today's U.S. Army counterintelligence special agents, in which Pinkerton's <laughs> agency is considered an early predecessor. He was succeeded as Intelligence Service Chief by Lafayette Baker. The Intelligence Service was then the predecessor of the U.S. Secret Service. So basically, the Pinkertons invented the Secret Service, too. This is insane. Out of nowhere. This guy just made up. Just one of those innate talents. I have to add this at this point, because we just talked about how, like, instrumental he was during the Civil War in the U.S. Military historians have been strongly critical of the intelligence Pinkerton provided for the Union Army, which, for the most part, was undigested raw data. In the view of T. Harry Williams, Pinkerton was the poorest intelligence service any general ever had. Pinkerton's estimates of rebel troop numbers derived from his credulous interrogations of Confederate prisoners, deserters, refugees, and escaped slaves, and civilians unused to counting large bodies of men badly exaggerated the size of those formations, sometimes almost doubling their actual strength. So the general would ask him to go figure out how many Confederate troops are in this area, and he would be like, oh yeah, there's like 10,000 troops, and there'd be maybe a few hundred. (laughs) I mean, that's on point for this guy. I would expect something more like this. So, yeah, that's uh, (laughs) a lot of this is really curated to make Pinkertons look like they're really good. But there's definitely information out there that they weren't that great. I mean, that would track for me as far as what I know so far. Once the Civil War is done, Pinkerton finishes the service with the Union Army. This is done before Abe Lincoln's assassinated. So you really can't blame him for not stopping that assassination. That one did exist and it did happen. However, he continued pursuits outside.
outside of that work, working for the train companies again. So he started running down train robbers, including the Reno gang, which I didn't end up looking into, who was also hired by the railroad express companies to track Jesse James. This is a super messed up story. Jesse James and Pinkertons have like a big fight for a long time, I guess a feud. So Pinkertons fails to capture him for a while. Railroad withdraws their financial support for Pinkertons, but Pinkertons continues to track James at their own expense. And after James allegedly captured and killed one of Pinkerton's undercover agents. Nice. They decide in 1875 they're gonna go to Jesse James's mom's house and they do a raid, like one of the first police raids, even though they're a private company. It's in Clay County, Missouri. Frank and Jesse, Frank is, I believe, Jesse's partner. They were nowhere around. It was just like Jesse James's mom and his half-brother who's eight years old. Pinkerton's, they go in, they get in a huge argument with the mom, and then somehow during this entire time, one of the detectives throws something inside the house and it explodes. Jesse James's mother's arm is blown off and his half-brother ends up dying. No. So there's a botched raid. Pinkerton's the company loses a lot of PR over this time. And after seeing his detectives denounced as murderers in the papers, Alan Pinkerton decides to call off his war against Jesse James. Never catches Jesse James. Then in 1871, Congress appropriates $50,000 to the new Department of Justice to form a suborganization devoted to, quote, the detection and prosecution of those guilty of violating federal law, end quote. The amount was insufficient to actually start an internal investigation unit, so they just end up contracting out to Pinkertons. So Pinkertons gets $50,000 in 1871 for detective work for the government. That's about $1.2 million today. Holy crap. And in 1872, they are contracted by the Spanish government to help suppress a revolution in Cuba, which intended to end slavery and give citizens the right to vote. So they are now being contracted as a militia, like internationally. This is a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. And this is super weird too, because Pinkerton, remember, he was part of the abolitionist movement in Chicago, allegedly. So why the hell would you take money from this to suppress a slave uprising in Cuba? <laughs> If you're abolitionist. Sounds like he either wasn't a part of it in the first place, or he's just doing whatever to make money. I think part of it is just trying to give a good reflection on the history of saying, oh yeah, he's an abolitionist, when really he would just take any money he could get. And like right yeah. from the start, again, evil logo. Evil is logo you could get. It's true. It doesn't get much evil than that logo. In the 1870s, Franklin B. Gowan, then president of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad, hired the agency to quote, investigate and quote, the labor unions in the company's minds. Pinkerton agent James McParland, using the alias James McKenna, infiltrated what is called the Molly Maguires, which is a 19th century, it's called a secret society, which apparently they infiltrated of mainly Irish American coal miners. They ended up being the cause of the Molly Maguires being no more. Now, I need to tell you, Molly Maguires, they're a secret society of yeah. Irish immigrant coal miners, basically just advocate for workers' rights. Now, they are a little more extreme in that they would terrorize or even kill foremen and supervisors. Oh they also are anti-war. Part of their charter is they won't fight a rich man's war. And they rebelled against drafts during the Civil War. So okay. not considered great, but they were literally just workers have no rights. There's no way to enforce them. We need to be violent. I mean, I, I can't argue with their logic. I agree with everything that they're for. The undercover work done by Pinkertons during this time led to many of them being executed by the state in 1877. And this inspired Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, to write 
write the novel The Valley of Fear. A Pinkerton agent also appears in a small role in The Adventure of Red Circle, which is a Sherlock Holmes story. So Arthur Conan Doyle was very aware of them and writing about them as well. Well, they seem to be shaking things up during this time, so. But alas, our friend Alan Pinkerton comes to an end on July 1st, 1884. Wow. Get this. Okay. Pinkerton living a big life. How do you think he came to an end? He choked on a ham sandwich. You know what? Not that far off. Okay. Give it to me. How, how is it? The general consensus at the time was that he was walking, slipped on some pavement, bit his tongue, died of gangrene. What? You know, it's not hard to die, really. Especially before it's penicillin. It's thing. Yeah, there's things out there that are very mundane that'll get you, and it's <laughs> the world's a scary place. I should say, a lot of people also believe it could have been a stroke, but the consensus of the time was gangrene of the tongue. Wow, that, okay. After okay. he dies in 1884, control of Pinkerton's detective agency goes to Pinkerton's sons, Robert and William Pinkerton, and the company continues to grow. So by the 1890s, 1884, within five years, Pinkerton's has 2,000 detectives and 30,000 reserves which is basically anybody they can get in to come do stuff. This is more men than the standing army of the U.S. Where are these people coming from? It's just people need work. Okay. And then, like, these are the only detectives. <laughs> and some states see this and they're like, holy shit, this is a mercenary army that you guys have. So some states outright ban Pinkertons or outlaw Pinkertons from working in their state. It's really just Ohio, but they at least said, like, we don't want Pinkertons in here, so they banned them. It's not a bad move, I would say. During Alan Pinkerton's life, the Pinkertons detective agency is credited with creating the first crime database. They're credited with creating the idea of a mugshot. They hired the first female private investigator in U.S. history, and they in fact coined the term private investigator or PI. I was just gonna say, not only did they hire the first female one, they had the first male one. Too. Yes. But that's actually, that's crazy. It just seems weird to me, like a woman working in the 1800s as a PI. Like I that seems so. pretty progressive. It is actually. Okay, kids take it over. We're gonna get into some of the shadier shit that goes on now. First and foremost is the Haymarket Riots. In 1886, there was a protest against the killings and woundings of several workers during a strike at the McCormick Reaper Works. This is in Illinois. The Haymarket Riots take place in Chicago. Everybody goes to the Haymarket. All these workers go there. They start having a protest, turns into a riot. Situation escalates into a violent riot when an unidentified person throws a bomb at the police, which results in the death of eight people. Policemen and Pinkertons were surrounding this protest at the time that the bomb went off, and then seven anarchists are arrested despite zero evidence linking them to the specific crimes. But a Pinkerton's detective testifies at the trial that they saw these people do this. Four of the men go to the gallows. They were hanged. <gasps> Oh no. During the trial, a defense team actually suggests there's evidence linking the Pinkertons to the bomb being thrown. <gasps> which reflects a widespread belief among the strikers. However, they could not substantiate this and, again, put to the gallows, four of them. Well, the Pinkertons? No, the anarchists. Well, how come the anarchists have to substantiate this and not the freaking Pinkertons? Because the Pinkertons are detectives, so they know this shit. That's at least what people believe at the time. Oh my god. Okay. This is a wild time to be alive. <laughs> Seven years after this, the Illinois governor ends up pardoning the last three living Haymarket anarchists after identifying the police and Pinkertons as unreliable narrators. So, yeah, they, they said that. It turns out it's not true at all. 
god. Then, in 1892, there's what's known as the Homestead Strike. This is Andrew Carnegie, who's a steel robber baron. You would know Andrew Carnegie, not necessarily by name, but you've heard of Carnegie Hall before, right? Yes. No, I'm thinking of Dale Carnegie. Yeah, I know. Dale Carnegie's a different guy. Carnegie ends up donating pretty much all of his wealth before he dies, and they build, like, culture around the big cities in the U.S. He ends up fairly poor when he dies, but he's an absolute asshole while he's alive. (laughs) Okay. To give you a short idea of what the Homestead strike is, in 1892, there's a city in Pennsylvania called Homestead. It's a company town, so it's built around a steel mill. Andrew Carnegie hires a guy to run the plant, and his last name is Frick. Can't remember his first name, but Frick is good enough for this. That's a good last name. Oh, especially if you're going to be somebody who's doing the biddings of a robber baron. Anyhow. Do they have those anymore? (laughs) We just have nicer names for them. We just call them philanthropists. Okay. Carnegie tells Frick he wants to get rid of the union in town. So when the contract's up for ratification, they lock the workers out of the plant. They put up barbed wire fences around the actual plant itself. They put up water cannons, which can actually spray boiling hot water at anybody outside. Basically, they say, nope, can't go in there, can't work. We're going to bring people into town to do the job instead of you scabs. And the workers are saying, well, screw you. We're just going to not let anybody in. It's a company town. They live there with their families. The only way in and out of town is by barge, because it's on a river. They just block anybody if they don't know in town. They say, get the hell out of here. The only people actually from outside of town they allow is the media. And if they think you're going to write a bad thing about the workers, they say, get lost. They were really set up quite nicely with that barge in a note. <laughs> Carnegie ends up hiring 300 Pinkerton detectives to come shut down the strike. They come in by barge. They end up getting into a 12-hour gunfight between 3,800 workers and 300 Pinkertons that are on the barge. Three Pinkertons die and seven workers die and then Pinkertons end up surrendering. So doesn't go well for them. But really weird way how this strike ends, just to give you the Coles notes. An anarchist from New York hears what's going on and the workers had huge public support. This anarchist hears about this Frick guy and he's like, oh, this guy's horrible. He ends up going to Homestead and attempting to assassinate Frick. He stabs him, but Frick survives and then public attention of this changes and they're against the workers now. So whether or not that's actually what happens, that's how the story ends up changing and the strike breaks. Everybody ends up going back to work, working longer hours for less pay. Oh no. Yeah, Pinkertons tried to have a hand in that. They did horribly in it. So Homestead happens and the Pinkertons group starts moving out of the corporate thug business, like where we'll go just shut down a strike. They felt that the damage to the company's reputation was not worth the business. After all, the company's technical main business was catching criminals and not serving as shock forces for capitalists. But they still remain involved in union busting by setting in agents to spy. The next strike that they get involved in is the Coeur d'Alene strike in Idaho. In order to invest in machinery, a coal mine in Idaho decides that what we're going to do is change your hours. All the workers, they were working nine hour days, six days a week. They want to change it to 10 hour days, seven days a week and give them a pay cut. Oh my God. They form a labor union. They start planning a strike. And the labor union is then infiltrated by Pinkerton's agents. They basically go in and say like, oh yeah, I want to work in the coal. Oh yeah, I want to be part of the union. They go to all the union meetings as Pinkerton agents and pass that information all on to the owners of the mines. So they routinely provide union information to the mine owners and there ends up being violence in this. On July 11th, 1892, the striking coal miners in Coeur d'Alene blow up the Frisco mill, a mine building filled with guards after getting into a firefight with Pinkerton's later on, (laughs) killing two mine employees and taking about 60 mine guards 
prisoner. This led to the governor of Idaho declaring martial law over the mining district and crushing the mine strike. And during this time, like it's a field day for union busting companies. So another one pops up, kind of the big competitor of Pinkerton's of the day is called the Baldwin Feltz Agency. They really have a foothold in West Virginia. So a lot of the strikes that go on in West Virginia end up having Baldwin Feltz agents attached to it. So like the Battle of Blair Mountain had Baldwin Feltz as opposed to Pinkerton's. Okay. Do you remember the Battle of Blair Mountain where it's all those coal miners on strike that end up getting attacked by air raids? Yeah, I always get that one confused with the Bigfoot one. That one's also a battle of some mountain. Right. Right. <laughs> Next up is the Pullman strike of 1894, which we did in our first episode of A History of Violent Strikes. Just to give you a bit of an idea, Pullman is a company that builds boxcars just outside of Chicago. They have the American Railway Union and out of union solidarity, they started blocking anything that was pulling a Pullman car. They just said, nope, nope, we're not gonna work on it. During this strike, 20,000 troops were called out to ensure that the trains carried US mail could travel freely. 30 people end up being killed during riots in Chicago for this, which may have gone up to 40, nobody really knows, and there was property damage in excess of 80 million. This is specifically listed under the Pinkerton's Wikipedia page as something they're involved with, but I couldn't find the particulars as to how they were involved with it. So they were just involved with the Pullman strike as far as I can tell. Okay, somehow, vaguely. Yeah. Maybe. They're also involved in one called the Miner Strike in Braidwood, Illinois. Pinkerton's was used by the industrialists against the miners during these strikes. The strikes were triggered by wage cuts and resulted in violent confrontations between Pinkerton's and striking miners. They were also involved, Chelsea, you did this one, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, mm -hmm. which was one of the most significant labor disputes in the 19th century. The strike was triggered by wage cuts and was marked by violent confrontations again between Pinkerton's and strikers. In 1905, Harry Orchard ends up being arrested by the Idaho police and confessing to Pinkerton agents, particularly James McFarland, that he assassinated former governor Frank Strunenberg of Idaho. He's a prominent person in the workers' rights worlds and for unions. And he just so happens to confess to a Pinkerton's person, detective, that he murdered the former governor. I mean, they seem like stand-up guys that would always tell the truth, though. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. He ends up getting acquitted for it in a nationally publicized trial. However, there were several people that were Implicated in this, there was a trial. Harry Orchard ends up receiving a death sentence, but ends up getting it commuted. So he's not actually put to death. What actually happened there, I'm not sure though. This one I find super interesting. In 1907, Morris Friedman reported that Pinkerton agents had infiltrated the Western Federation of Miners and managed to gain control of the strike relief fund. So you know that money that they have for a rainy day if they need to go on strike? He ends up exhausting the treasury by awarding lavish benefits to strikers. However, many attacks against unions have used force for one sort or another, they found new and different ways to actually stop strikers. This guy joined the union as a Pinkerton's detective. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm good with money. I'll handle the money. And just gave it all out so that they had no money to support themselves while striking. Their timeline of events is bizarre. It's just been a wild ride from like stumbling upon people potentially counterfeiting in the woods to now they're working against unions and like... And that's like exclusively what they do during this time. Like they're still working for the railways. This is so weird. But yeah. And then according to the New Republic, a newspaper, the Pinkertons were also brought in alongside the Colorado National Guard during the 1914 Ludlow Massacre. So I had to give you a little more background on this one because this is just insane. So the Ludlow Massacre is basically soldiers from Colorado's National Guard and private guards employed by the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company were brought in to stop a strike that was going on at a coal mine, basically a tank colony of roughly 1,200 workers and also their families living in Ludlow, Colorado. 
So Pinkertons and the Colorado National Guard are brought in to suppress it. John Rockefeller Jr. was also a part owner in this company. And that's just a little bit of information for the robber baron side of it all. Anyhow, what happens is they end up burning down the tent city and 69 to 199 people were killed during the suppression. And it's considered, quote, the deadliest strike in the history of the United States. I don't know what to say about that. And the 69 to 199 people who died were mostly women and children. They were not the people that were on strike because the families would be in the tents. I was just gonna say, were like they doing any fighting or did they just go like light up the houses, so to say? I think they were trying to disperse them away from the mine so that if you don't have a place to live, why would you stick around the mine? Great idea, Pinkertons. But that's been the theme for the whole podcast. The Ludlow Massacre was a watershed moment in American labor relations. Socialist historian Howard Zinn describes it as, quote, the culminating act of perhaps the most violent struggle between corporate power and laboring men in American history, end quote. And this is really a changing point for how Pinkertons can relate to things. So Congress responds to public outrage by directing the House Committee on Mines and Mining to investigate the events. It publishes a report in 1915, which is super influential in child labor laws being introduced to the U.S. and an eight-hour workday. The Ludlow town site and the adjacent location of the tent colony is now a ghost town that you can go visit. So super weird. The massacre site is owned by the United Mine Workers of America, which erected a granite monument in memory of those who died that day. I should also say it's not just Pinkertons that's implicated in that one. Baldwin Feltz is also implicated. In the 1930s, the Pinkerton agency employed 1,200 labor spies, and nearly one-third of them held high-level positions in targeted unions. The International Association of Machinists was damaged when Sam Brady, a veteran Pinkerton operative, held a high enough position in the union that he was able to precipitate a premature strike. So he pushed them to go on strike when they weren't ready for it. So it was a failure. And all but five officers in the United Auto Workers local in Lansing Michigan were driven out by Pinkerton's agents. The five who remained were Pinkerton's at the end of the day. At the Underwood Elliott Fisher Company plant, the union local was so badly injured by undercover operatives that membership dropped from more than 2,500 to fewer than 75. So they moved from being like just the bullies to a very different style. This is so stupid. (laughs) But this is where the big change happens for Pinkertons. Bosses once hired the firm because its agents would do just about anything to break a strike. Pinkertons agents would lie and kill if necessary and they could do things and go places law enforcement could not. Companies hire Pinkertons now because the firm's very name still implies a threat. As the 20th century progressed, Pinkertons changed their concentration and more of their resources into surveillance and corporate espionage. When the U.S. Senate convened the Lafayette Civil Liberties Committee in 19 Senators found that the Pinkertons had not only infiltrated general workers, whose workers were then attempting to organize with the United Auto Workers, their agents had also destroyed evidence before the government could complete an investigation of their activities. They're not only infiltrating these guys, they're specifically destroying evidence that could implicate them in anything that the government is finding. Because of this, they passed the Wagner Act through Congress in the 1930s, which made the investigation of labor activities illegal. Pinkertons then shift its focus towards the investigation of gambling, particularly the horse racing circuit, weirdly enough. And during World War II in the 1940s, the agency provided guarding services for war supply plants. This marked a significant shift in the agency's service, with property guarding becoming their primary focus. It's all been significant shifts, I would say. They're just all over the map. In the 1960s, the word detective disappeared from the agency's letterhead, reflecting its shift from the detective work towards 
Protection Services. And during this period, the agency also established offices in Hong Kong, opening doors to operations in Asia. I don't know much about that side of it. In the late 20th century, the company became increasingly involved in risk management and executive protection, and it was bought by a Swedish security company known as Securitas AB in 1999, which led to further expansion and diversification in its services. The company, now operating as Pinkerton Consulting and Investigations Incorporated, focuses on threat intelligence, risk management, executive protection, and active shooter responses. And in recent years, Pinkerton has transformed into a global provider of corporate risk management and has pioneered the holistic approach called ESRM, Enterprise Security Risk Management. And it has also developed a comprehensive risk management platform to unlock a specialized solution framework. A lot of that comes from PR bullshit from them. They are still around today. They're very real still. The Pinkertons survived and entered the 21st century intact, largely on the strength of their ability to intimidate, surveil, and gather intelligence about workers. On its website, the company advertises, quote, global protective intelligence, end quote produced in large part by agents who are embedded or on call. Corporate clients can access the Pinkerton Vigilance Network, which consists of the firm's agents, government agencies, and 1,000 plus private sources. The goal is to help corporations manage risk on all fronts, from natural disasters to political events. Pinkerton's hardly the only firm to advertise such services, but its history sets it apart and the company embraces its legacy. Quote, with one call to Pinkerton's, you gain access to our global network of resources, providing boots on the ground when and where you need them, end quote, it promises. And Securitas ad for the firm lists, quote, labor demonstrations, end quote, among the risks it can monitor. So they're still in anti-union bullshit. Trouble can happen anywhere, anytime. That's their tagline. Is that legal anymore, anti-union? Let's look at what they've been doing the last few years. This came right from Chelsea, of all places that's writing anti-Pinkerton stuff, what magazine do you think it is? Is it the cult one? You're never going to guess it. This is Teen Vogue. I'm never going to Teen Vogue. Yeah. Okay. Weirdly, a bunch of bullshit about teenage celebrity shit and then pro-labor rights stuff. Okay. Don't understand it at all. No. <laughs> the okay. Pinkerton promise is attractive to some Silicon Valley firms. The Guardian reported on March 16th that Google and Facebook have both retained Pinkertons to monitor staff for leaks. Quote, among other services, Pinkerton offers to send investigators to coffee shops or restaurants near a company's campus to eavesdrop on employees' conversations. End quote. Olivia Salon reported. Oh my God. A Pinkerton representative told Salon that its agents typically focus on IP theft and insider trading, but the firm's reach may not end with those concerns. And sorry, I said this is Teen Vogue, this one's not Teen Vogue, this one's Salon. Quote, through LinkedIn searches, The Guardian found several former Pinkerton investigators to have subsequently been hired by Facebook, Google, and Apple, Salon wrote. <laughs> Facebook and Google fittingly are now in the process of building their own physical communities. Apartments in Willow Village and Alphabet City will theoretically be available to all, but the parallels of company towns of old are obvious. That's crazy. So they're working for Facebook and Google, doing God knows what and Apple. Next up, dozens of leaked documents from Amazon's Global Security Operations Center reveal the company's reliance on Pinkerton operatives to spy on warehouse workers and the extensive monitoring of labor unions, environmental activists, and other social movements. 
rights. Is that legal? Is it? Or no? Yes, it must be. Quasi. Gray area. Next up, there have been reports of Starbucks using Pinkerton agents to monitor labor board rulings. This suggests that Starbucks may have been using Pinkerton agents to gather information about potential union activities and to prepare for potential strikes or other labor disputes. All these big companies. And then this one is super weird. This has to do with Magic the Gathering. Chelsea, do you know what that is? Yeah, that card game. Major nerd card game. They're owned by Wizards of the Coast, who is an ardent defender of its IP. Basically, they make a ton of money off Magic the Gathering and a few other things. So they tightly hold things close at hand without letting it out. A YouTuber by the name of Dan Cannon, who goes by Old School MTG on YouTube, he uploaded a video of himself opening a box of Magic the Gathering cards that he just got in the mail. And it turns out the cards weren't supposed to be released yet. They accidentally got sent to him. They were from the next set that was supposed to come out, not the current set that was coming out. So he posts these videos of him opening what's called the March of the Machines Aftermath. Whereas the card set that had come out was March of the Machines. You can see how it's fucking confusing. This set was not due to be released until later in the year, but Cannon had purchased the box from an acquaintance who was unaware they were selling an unreleased set. In response to these videos, Wizards of the Coast, the publisher of Magic the Gathering, hires Pinkertons to recover the leaked cards. The agents arrive at Cannon's house, demand he hand over the stolen products, and tell him that he will face jail time if he does not. They're in his house berating him and his family and saying, you're going to go to jail if you don't hand these cards over because you stole them. He ends up giving all of the cards and tokens and everything that had to do with these cards, even the packaging, to the Pinkerton's detectives because they intimidated him so much. Why is that the way they do it, though? Like, why wouldn't they be like, I'll give you these ones instead. Just give me those. What a bunch of dicks. Yeah, Cannon, the guy who posted the videos, maintains that the cards were just mistakenly sent to him from a person whom he purchased them from. And after the incident, Cannon was given a number to call at Wizards of the Coast. The representative he spoke to was apologetic and assured him they did not believe anyone had stolen the cards. Instead, they wanted to investigate how the unreleased set had ended up in his hands and plug that hole. They might just be making that shit up, but uh, Pinkertons might have also been way more aggressive than they intended them to be. <laughs> well, just looking at their track history. Because of this entire thing happening, Cannon ends up removing his unboxing videos from YouTube, and he asks anybody who is using videos or screenshots from his YouTube channel to please delete them. Like, he just wants nothing to do with this anymore. This last one, it's not really detective activity, but I had to include it just because it shows you what they are. I'm still unsure of what they are. <laughs> Chelsea, you've heard of Rockstar before, right? Not the energy drink, the video game company. They make Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption. Okay, yeah, I know those games, I guess. Red Dead Redemption takes place in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And because of this, and them being outlaws, guess who shows up in the game? Jesse James. The Pinkertons. Oh, okay. Pinkertons ends up filing a lawsuit against Rockstar and its parent company, Take-Two Interactive, alleging that Rockstar had no right to use their agency's name in the game, Red Dead Redemption 2. The game features Pinkerton agents as the antagonists who are constantly pursuing the Vanderlind gang the game's protagonist. In response, Rockstar and Take-Two filed a counter lawsuit in January claiming that the use of Pinkerton's name was protected under the First Amendment as it was part of the game's historical setting. Yeah. They argued that Pinkerton's could not use trademark law to own the past and prevent creators from including historical references to Pinkerton agents in depictions of the American West. Yeah, I'm on their side. Do they win? Pinkerton's original lawsuit accused Rockstar and Take-Two of violating its trademark of the Pinkerton name. However, the legal disputes end quietly. Take-Two voluntarily dismisses the lawsuit that they filed against Pinkerton's and it appears that Pinkerton's also just dropped their case. Because, you know, that's a huge company. 
And yeah, they're still alive and kicking like all over the place today. I did not expect it to end like that. You'll see a lot of this. Anything that's set in the late 1800s, early 1900s likely has some sort of reference to Pinkerton for that day because it is a household name at the time. The Red Dead Redemption games, it shows up a lot. There was actually a Canadian show called Pinkertons for a while. I've never seen it. Apparently it exists. And Bioshock Infinite has references to Pinkertons as well. So it shows up a lot in relevant media. If you're looking at the 1800s, it's huge. They well, it sounds like it. put that on their logo and never looked back. Just decided, yep, we're evil. What's the evilest stuff we could do? Okay, this this one, we can't do this one anymore. What's the next evilest thing we could do? <laughs> Let's go beat up a nerd with some magic cards. Yeah, I wasn't prepared for this. I mean, every time I thought I got a hold on what was going on with the Pinkertons and Pinkertons, they completely changed course. <laughs> But history, everybody should know. Like, this company is still around and I'd never still even doing heard of shady them. shit. Like, all the biggest companies still use them. And was shocked about that as well, to find out they're still around. I was expecting them to get shut down or something. But I guess that wouldn't track. I guess they would still be around. Well, I learned a lot of new things today. Chelsea, anything you want to add before we end the episode? No. Okay. Them all out. Then I have been Taylor here with Chelsea. We are Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh